peer pressure has always been a thing, right? That's nothing new. When you and I were younger, peer pressure in that age group was 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 something that we dealt with. I th I think what's different now for our children is in a world of social media where everyone has the perfectly manicured life, uh, where you can also have that sense of where FOMO becomes, you know, it's always been bad. It's now it's increasingly exaggerated, you know, in a one to many world, uh, you know, hey, I'm at this great place having these fun things and everything's perfectly manicured. And by the way, that's not life. That's not what life really is. Our children are going through some really challenging times. Uh, and I think it's always been hard, but I think the technology that enables us to do so much that we couldn't do do before is really a double-edged sword. And by the way, it's finally coming out. You see what's happened with Facebook and the Facebook files. And they've known for a long time, you know, what Instagram, how hurtful and harmful it is, especially to young teenage girls. This episode is brought to you by Vimeo. I've been a pro user of Vimeo basically since I started my production company in 2010. Vimeo is for creative professionals like me and I use it in several different ways. For example, it's a place for me to upload my videos with a password for my clients to be able to review and download the work I'm doing for them. Uh, there's no compression, crushing of black colors or oversaturation like what I get when I upload a YouTube video. My clients get the full 4K resolution HD as it was intended. I also use it to host and broadcast live events. I also use Vimeo for my portfolio, case studies, and it never has annoying pre-roll ads. I can create a customized player and keep people on my landing page so they don't get distracted and go down the rabbit hole watching someone else's stuff. What you may not know about Vimeo is that you can use it if you're in HR or if you own a company. You can put all of those onboarding videos all in one place, a nice, tidy, professional-looking uh, playlist or playboard where people can consume and understand or download all the new training videos all in one place. You could also do the same thing if you teach a course. Imagine putting all your videos behind a paywall, charging for it, and then you know, sending people the link with a password. Need a videographer, creative director, or editor? Vimeo lets you post jobs and find creative professionals. There's a ton more options, so I would suggest checking them out. This episode is brought to you in part by our friends at WeWork. The reason I chose to have an office at WeWork is based a lot on flexibility. I started a decade ago as a one-person company, and now we have a growing team. WeWork has the space and budget for all my needs. From hot desks for one, to a full office setup with multiple people, I can grow, scale up or down whenever I need. I also love the community and other small business and entrepreneurs who work here. It's super collaborative and everyone is in the same boat, willing to help each other out. If you're interested in a tour, visit WeWork.com, search by your city and zip code for a WeWork near you. Now let's get back to our episode. Hi, I'm Rob Siegel, a lecturer at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and you're watching Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. I usually ask my guests, how did you get this job? You know, it was kind of pure coincidence and luck. Uh, about 20 years ago, I was working in a semiconductor company, and I was in charge of strategy for the organization. And I ran a process inside of the company, and I wanted to get some feedback from one of my old professors at Stanford. So I called him up and said, hey, can I come see you? And he said, sure. So I went and brought him you know, the work I had done at this company and the, that our team had done. And it was really, you know, I didn't know if maybe there was an article in here or a book in here. And he's, I'm showing him the work I did. And he looked at me, he said, I don't know if there's an article or a book, but there is a case that we could write on the company and teach it here at Stanford. Would you want to help me write it? And then maybe you can come into the class and help me teach the case. And I thought that sounded like fun. So we did it. 
and then the next year we wrote another case, and then the next year we wrote another case, and then we had a couple of papers published. And within about eight years, I was going to every class session. And then one day I got an email from the Graduate School of Business where I'm an alum, and it said, hi, welcome to the faculty as a lecturer. And on that day, I vowed they'd never get rid of me. And I would work really, really hard and be nice to everybody. You know, this show, it's we have a pretty diverse audience, uh, but also uh, it's pretty niched down. So it's both diverse and niche, if that's possible. Let me explain. So the diversity comes in both sort of psychographic, typical demographic, which you might imagine, and then all all age and, and, and it's all over the map. So we have young people who are maybe coming out of high school who tune in and I think they're in a place where they're trying to figure things out. And so I want to ask you, you know, what were you thinking about when you were a teenager? What, you know, what did you want to be when you grew up? Is that line? But I also want you to frame your answer for, you know, people who are sort of mid-career or even mid-age right now, because we're coming out of this maybe great reset where everyone's sort of rethinking, you know, we've been working from home for a couple of years. Um, Everything has changed. And so, you know, there's this new opportunity to think differently. And so I like to identify signals and patterns to sort of be able to understand the road that we should take. You know, how do we know what we should do? So what were you thinking about when you were a teenager? So when I was a teenager, I was just a big fat loser. I was trying to think about how I was going to, you know, get beer and try to meet girls. I mean, let's face it, that was kind of what a teenage boy, you know, growing up in Southern California thinks about, or, you know, a chunk of us. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I entered the University of California, Berkeley as a 17 year old, and my roommate was working for a software company. This was the mid eighties. And I, you know, I played with computers, but like, I didn't really know what software or how it was made. And I was thinking about studying engineering and, and, you know, I said, okay, I need to make some beer money now that I'm in college. And so I ended up going to work for the software company part-time and I loved it. I loved the technology. I loved the people. I loved the energy and I kind of fell into tech. And as I look at how my career progressed, it was really a series of steps that I don't know that I was very purposeful about, like certain opportunities presented themselves. And at a moment in time, I kind of got lucky several times. You know, when I went to Intel, I met uh, somebody on an airplane and that he was happened to be an executive at Intel and we developed a friendship and I eventually went to work for him. And then when I started my first company, it was a random idea that I had. So I went and started the company. And so I, what I would actually coach people to do and what I don't tell my students is I often ask them to think about where do they want to be in 10 years? And like holistically, not only in their career, but in their lives, how do they think about their relationships? If they want to have a partner, if they want to have a family, whether it's relationship to their community and how can they design you know, a, a life that allows them to encompass, say, the five key variables in their life that they're playing for. And, you know, maybe a couple of those are career. And if you know where you want to be in a decade, you can then work backwards and say, well, okay, in my next job, what are the five or six things I need to learn that will put me on that journey to help me get there? And that doesn't mean you're going to achieve it. It doesn't mean you're going to get there, but it gives you that opportunity to at least be purposeful in your actions. And I think that's more important than trying to kind of plan everything out to like the last digit and to know that every step to take. And sometimes you just kind of have to go with the flow of the universe, but march in a direction that you think would make you happy or you think that you might enjoy yourself. I love that advice. Um, and you're in good company actually. So I just had uh, Debbie Millman on the show and I don't know if you know Debbie, but she is a designer uh, and voted 
by like Fast Company Magazine and many others as one of the most creative people in the world. And wow. and, and actually, uh, Debbie teaches, um, uh, where does she teach? Now I feel really bad. It's a, Is it New York School of Design? Debbie, forgive me if I've just got that wrong, but it's it's one of the top design schools, schools in New York. And, and almost verbatim, that's her advice to her students as well. Um, and she treats it uh, sort of like a time capsule that you should, you know, write these 10-year plans down and then navigate uh, or, you know, reverse engineer, however you want to uh, word it, and then see if it doesn't come true. And she says it's remarkable how accurate, you know, when you sort of, uh, you know, start your trajectory, how close you get to the actual goal. It's, it's amazing. I think being purposeful is actually kind of more important. One of my colleagues on the Sanford faculty, Jennifer Ocker, and another one of our colleagues, Suchi Huang, did research that said if you work towards a goal, but you actually enjoy the journey, you, you enjoy when you get to the goal ultimately anyways, versus if you're only focused on the goal and don't enjoy the work and the what it takes to actually get there. And, and the nice thing about thinking about 10 years you know, forward and thinking about maybe the five key variables you want to focus on is, you know, you can do that exercise every five to seven years, and maybe you have new goals that you want to work towards or a new life that you want to live. And so you can, you know, make changes, maybe some variables come on and some variables come off. But again, you can be purposeful and also constantly renewing yourself. And in a world that's constantly changing, and changing at an accelerated rate, mind you, you know, I think that that notion of being purposeful, but also being flexible and open to change is really, really critical. Yeah, and I want to underscore because it maybe was subtle, maybe people missed it, but it was very, very important what you said, and that is, at least from my experience. So I have a thirteen-year-old son um, who's still at home, and and even from him, I feel through him a little bit of the pressure that he feels, anxiety to have it all figured out already. You know, he's in seventh grade, and already he's thinking. Oh man, I've got to, you know, I've got to have my career path mapped out where I'm going to go. So I was like, put the brakes on, son, pump the brakes. It's okay, actually. You know, you can set big, lofty goals. I'm, I'm glad you want to play in the NFL or, you know, run a huge company or, you know, get to Mars, whatever you're going to do, those big, big goals. But like, it's okay to not have it figured out. And just like you said, it's okay to pivot, change your mind, do 180, you know, um, I think, I think life in general is uh, about trying stuff on for size. Sometimes you think it's going to exactly, exactly. Yeah, sometimes you think it's going to look good on you, and you go, you know what? I don't look that great in polka dots. You know. Peer pressure's always been a thing, right? That's nothing new. When you and I were younger, peer pressure in that age group was 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 something that we dealt with. I I think what's different now for our children is in a world of social media where everyone has the perfectly manicured life, uh, where you can also have that sense of where FOMO becomes, you know, it's always been bad. It's now it's increasingly exaggerated, you know, in a one to many world, uh, you know, hey, I'm at this great place having these fun things and everything's perfectly manicured. And by the way, that's not life. That's not what life really is. Our children are going through some really challenging times. Uh, and I think it's always been hard, but I think the technology that enables us to do so much that we couldn't do do before is really a double-edged sword. And by the way, it's finally coming out. You see what's happened with Facebook and the Facebook files. And they've known for a long time, you know, what Instagram, how hurtful and harmful it is, especially to young teenage girls. Yeah. Let me get you to weigh in on that just while we're on it. Um, you know, this show is called Behind the Brand. We talk a lot about brands and branding, brand strategy. Um, 
you come from, you know, the business world, but you're also, you know, you have your hands in investing and now you're an educator in academia. Uh, what's your take on um, the rebrand? Good idea, bad idea, head in the right direction? You know, what are your thoughts? All right. So this is going to be one person's opinion. I think rebranding was a good thing because Facebook is basically a toxic brand. You know, there, there's nothing positive now associated with that brand. So I think coming up with a new brand, that's kind of almost why not? I'm not a huge fan of meta. And, and this is probably, probably end up sounding like a curmudgeonly gnome, but you know, that comes from the metaverse, the Neil Stevenson book, Snow Crash, which was written in 1992, right? So people have been talking about virtual worlds like forever. This is not a new thing. Uh, and so, you know, Zuck has basically thought this is the coolest thing ever. And he, you know, they bought Oculus and they think it's just so great that everyone's going to wear these, these goggles. You know, there was a, the, one of the world's leading researchers at Stanford, Jeremy Bailison, just taught his first class, you know, actually all in virtual reality. Here's the thing. The class could only be 30 minutes long because people get sick if they wear these things too long. And so Facebook is hanging its hat you know, on a, from a brand strategy standpoint, on something that makes people sick. By the way, I've experienced this, you know, when I go over to the engineering school and I put this stuff on, you get dizzy after a long period of time. Like it's okay for a few minutes. So I just think a lot of the virtual world stuff, while it might be good for entertainment, it'll be good for snippets. You know, I don't believe it's gonna take over the world in terms of communication and business and stuff like that. I think it's going to be a niche thing. And by the way, the hardware is really expensive, et cetera. Now, it could be that this is the time where finally the technology is going to come together and the product's going to be great. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, the iPad wasn't the first tablet, but it was the first one that got it right. And so I think the difference is Jobs actually put out a great product and then everyone went, yes, this makes sense. All they did was change the name. We still don't have a great product and we still don't have a great metaverse. Yeah, I, I like that line of thinking. And I, I could, I can get on board um, with everything you said. Uh, in my opinion, it may also very easily just be a distraction, right? Like, hey, pay no attention to all the garbage we've been yeah. doing. Yeah. Um, that's now because of whistleblower, whistleblower evidence uh, that we know is factual, not just speculation. Um, it could just be- a And Facebook's been a- They've been a dumpster fire for 12 years. This is not new. They, they've hidden, you know, the privacy tools and moved them for a long period of time. You know, the Cambridge Analytica crisis. Like, this is not a big revelation. This is just the next in line of a series of things. And for the first time, they got caught with a smoking gun. Yeah, and that's why I tend to think uh, it's more of a distraction. The other thing it could be is kind of like what Google is famous for, and that is, you know, they acquire a company not to grow it and make it successful. They just acquire it so someone else can't get it. And so, you know, Mark may have gotten Oculus because uh, maybe without any long-term plans, he just thought, well, I better scoot that up before, you know, and then fill in the blank, what other company gets it uh, to sort of defeat the, the possible competition, who knows? I mean, that, that's entirely possible. I guess what I would say is that he has spent a lot of time talking for years about virtual reality. You know, he brought, you know, Hugo Barra in, which is a well-known executive here in Silicon Valley, you know, who went from Google to Xiaomi and China and, and, and Facebook brought him back to the United States. I actually think Mark believes it. I worry, not worry. I wonder if it's a, what it's sometimes referred to as the Silicon Valley reality distortion field. Is that this geeky person thinks this is the coolest thing in the world? The question is, does anybody else think it's a cool thing? And we've seen this before. 
Like, you know, a lot of people have been doing, you know, want to do virtual worlds and everything else. This is not new. Yeah, I, mean, I remember Second Life as a as a, an yeah. experiment. And, um, you know, I mean, who knows? Uh, we had uh, we had the Palm Pilot and then we had the Blackberry. And then eventually, at least, you know, Steve and Apple and crew perfected that thing to where well, the mobile phone business was uh, was a boring business, and they turned it into a very sexy business that revolutionized the world. So uh, maybe it's too early to speculate, but uh, I'm you know I have my doubts about about Facebook. And the other interesting thing is that um, Jack Dorsey stepped down from uh, Twitter this week, and that's another yeah. big, big brand move. Uh, and then he rebranded his company. From square to block, almost just you know added several sides. I personally would have gone with uh, with rhombus. It's a bit obtuse, but you know that's the point. Well, but you know now that you, if you read the press release and whatever they were saying, oh, it's, you know it's about you know like a, the neighborhood block and stuff like that, blockchain, you know, crypto, you know, that you know square is worth ninety eight billion dollars, or now block is worth ninety eight billion dollars. I don't. For some reason, they thought they needed to change the name. I think it has to do more with cryptocurrency. Jack is very high on cryptocurrency, thinks, you know, it's going to, you know, replace currencies around the world. You know, he's a pretty smart person. Uh, so I, I think it had more to do with that. But, you know, Square was is a very uh, well-executing company. And so I'm not sure why they felt so compelled to uh, change the brand, but okay. I mean, maybe it's one of these things where he's gotten so much heat, especially with him being at Twitter, that if he changes the name of where he spends now most of his time, no one will notice that it's the same dude. Well, I was talking to um, Scott Galloway and some of these others, and you know, all of us were sort of, again, speculating. And the move that everyone sort of was thinking was that maybe uh, Jack you know, has left Twitter to go full-time into Block, but now we'll have the means through a fintech company to come back and buy Twitter. And we thought, oh, that that would be interesting. I've heard that a lot. You know, I guess the Twitter's market cap's 32 billion. It would only cost about 30% of Block to buy Twitter. But it's kind of, you know, what about all the people who were there? You know, like, what would that be like? It just seems like it would be kind of a strange thing. And then you've got activist investors inside of Twitter. So like, you know, they would, they, they would find it too. I can kind of get the impression he doesn't want to deal with the headache of do, dealing with something like that. And you know, a deal like that would get reviewed by the government and the, the FTC and the DOJ. Um, so I, you know, it's entirely possible. We'll see if he does it. I don't think we're going to get big mergers out of tech for a while. I think, you know, people are thinking tech is too big already. And so big mergers that make big tech bigger. I'm I'm skeptical that, that those those will get approved by Washington. Well, although I I really did like Mark Benioff's move with Salesforce and Slack, I thought that was a brilliant you know uh, collaboration. I think that seems like a natural fit. Let me ask you too, you know, because I know that you're a pretty active investor. Do you want to weigh in on the on the Slack move? Well, I was just going to say nobody thinks Benioff's evil. You know, in the way that they think Twitter's evil or Facebook's evil, or even some people think Google is evil. So I think Benioff was able to get away with it. I don't know that he could get away with it now, to be honest with you. I think it would get a good look. A twenty-seven billion dollar acquisition would get a good hard look from uh, uh, the government. Yeah, 
That's fair. So I know, I know that you, you know, you have your hands in investing and, and in your book is, you know, uh, finance focused. Um, so let's weigh in a little bit on a personal investment strategy. Uh, do you have, uh, what's your overall feeling about tech stocks and um, crypt- crypt- cryptocurrencies right now, State of the Union? Well, now, most of the investing that I do personally is in private companies through various venture funds. And so, you know, what we're, what I'm seeing in the market and, you know, in the private markets is that valuations are very high and there's big deals, big money's coming into fewer and fewer companies. So we've seen consolidation, not only of venture funds, but also of, 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 of you know, the, the deals that are getting done, there's fewer of them and more money going into those fewer deals. Now, I think there's a there are booms in certain sectors. Go ahead, I'm sorry. What categories or industries do you have your money invested? Well, we invest generally in, in through Exceed, which is one of the funds I'm involved in. We invest in a lot of what I'll call mainstream technology, you know, software uh, and, and, and artificial intelligence and machine learning solutions. Uh, I'm a venture partner in a fund called Piva, and they do a lot of climate tech investing as well as what's sometimes referred to as Industry 4.0, which is going to, you know, the reinvention of manufacturing and, and of making things and alternative, you know, materials. So, you know, I, the things that I've, we're investing in are pretty broad-based. There are certain sectors that are very hot right now, obviously. Climate tech is very hot. Anything crypto is just on fire right now. Uh, and so, you know, and there, look, there will be losses that come out of these things. You know, right now it's almost like it, there's there's so much volatility. It's a lot of speculation, and money is made in times of speculation, and money is also lost in times of speculation. Uh, and so, kind of like when the first internet bubble came through, there was an overinvestment in optical networking, and a lot of those companies did really well, and then went bankrupt. But the optical networking fiber that they laid on a global basis became the backbone for what we're doing right now on a global basis for communication and collaboration tools. So it's unclear necessarily who the specific winners will be, but the investments in the area will lead to future technologies and future consumer and business uses. Yeah, I mean, in the scheme of things, we're probably with uh, Web 3.0, we're probably around 1997 and not, not even close to 01 with the tech bubble burst. Uh, it's very, very interesting times. Yeah, I try not to predict exactly when things are going to collapse. So I don't know if we're in 97, 98, 99, or early 2000, but we're before March 2000. I know this. It's it's not yet March, you know, March 2000. It's before that. Uh, a personal question. Do you have Tesla stock? What Are you, are you watching Tesla? I do. I, I, I watch it, but I don't own Tesla stock. Yeah. It's just so interesting, you know, again, back to branding and how uh, influence can take a uh, a part in that and how one person, you know, the, the voice and the face of the company, the brand can be so influential. I think it's quite an anomaly. I can't think of any other case. Elon, Elon's Iron Man, like, you know, he's Iron Man. He lands rockets on barges in the middle of the ocean. Okay. If he gets hit by a bus... Tesla stock would not be where it's at today. You know, so he's kind of one of these, you know, once a century entrepreneurs and business leaders. And and, and he's done it, by the way, multiple times, right? You know, PayPal, you know, SpaceX, Tesla, what he's doing with the boring company. So the thing about Elon is, you know, you can't, that's not normal. Now you're looking as an investor for outliers. So like you follow people like Elon. Yeah, things might go down sometimes. There might be volatility, but a lot of times they go up. This is the same thing with Mayoshi San, you know, Masa and SoftBank. 
over 30 years, he's been a good bet, even if there's been volatility along the way. Yeah, and speaking of Masa, I mean, uh, he's the one that sort of swooped in and saved WeWork from that dumpster fire uh, and sort of picked up probably a, you know, picked that company up for a song. And uh, there's another brand that sort of primed, kind of like when they launched right around the recession time, 2008. I feel like, at least personally, the timing couldn't be better for WeWork to have another sort of windfall uh, season because, you know, the work from home and the whole remote thing, it's everything's changed. And so they're primed and ready, maybe over ready, <laughs> over surplused uh, with, with space for people that need f flexible office uh, arrangements. Well, if you look at what Sandeep, you know, the new CEO, what he did there, he, he's a real estate and turnaround person at heart. And so like he understands how to fix the situation. So the first thing they did is they got their cost basis under control. Then they renegotiated a lot of the leases that they had. And so now, you know, if, if assuming that we can get in front of these, you know, various variants that keep coming, um, you know, as things slowly start to open up and that will happen, you know, there's going to be flexible work, just like you talked about. So, you know, having big campuses just for one company may not make sense. And in fact, with WeWork, I think 40 or 50% of their business now is not startups, but large organizations who are designing that flexibility in. So they could be very well positioned. And, you know, strangely enough, you know, Adam Newman always said it was a movement or a tech company. And it was like, no, no, you're a real estate company. Sandeep cleaned it up and made it, you know, thought of it as a real estate company. But a lot of the underlying technology that they used to run WeWork, hoteling, scheduling desks, all the other things that go along with that are going to have value to other companies as well. So they, the, the irony in this is they may end up selling some of the tech or licensing the tech to other people for use because everybody's work habits are gonna change. And, and so even if you don't go into a WeWork place, you might use WeWork's technology to help run your own office. Yeah, you know, here's a weird comparison for you. Uh, WeWork and McDonald's are the same because when the McDonald's first got into the business, you know, Ray Kroc was confused that he was in the fast food business and he wasn't. He was in the real estate business. And that's actually how he, you know, made his fortune and grew McDonald's to what it is today. He thought of it as, a, you know, a retail franchise. He would buy the land and then have the, uh, uh, the um, uh, folks buy the restaurants and rent through yeah. him. And then all of the technology that he developed, whether it's the milkshakes or the process kind of like a, right. uh, a Ford-esque assembly line for food, uh, he would pioneer that and then license that out to other people. But I like what you said. I, I spoke to Sandeep um, two weeks ago. Really smart guy. I'm super impressed. Yeah. He is an amazing person. Uh, um, if all goes well, I'm hoping you know, he's going to be visiting one of my classes next quarter at Stanford. And if all goes well, I might have some, I might have something to say on this space in the next few weeks. But uh, let's wait and see. One more question then for, for WeWork and Stanford, since you're a Stanford guy. Uh, do you see the possibility, you know, as, as classrooms, virtual classrooms expand or the idea beyond the walls of, you know, the, uh, the burgundy there? The cardinal, what do we call it? What is it? The cardinal red? Cardinal. It's cardinal. It's 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 just we we are cardinal. We are the Stanford cardinal, not the cardinals. That's a bird. We're the Stanford cardinal. Yeah. Beyond the walls of the cardinal, uh, uh -huh. do you see maybe facilities like WeWork 
being um, sort of extension or satellite offices or, you know, classrooms for students who may not be able to um, travel, at, you know, to Northern California, et cetera. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a great point. I think education will never be the same because of the pandemic. You know, as one of my colleagues said to me today, before the pandemic, 2% of the instructors in the world, maybe 1% knew how to teach remotely and now 98% do. And so we've learned not only how to teach remotely, uh, we've learned also how to, um, uh, you know, in the in the spring I taught hybrid where I would have 30 students in the room and another 45 online all on Zoom and we learned how to make that work where you could teach that simultaneously. And so my ability to reach people all over the world through this camera that I'm, you know, using right now is is truly incredible. And so like there was one day last month where, you know, my morning I was teaching executives in Oman in the Middle East. I went to Stanford and taught two classes a few miles from my home. I went back and then went online and taught some entrepreneurs in South Korea at 5 p.m. And then at 10 o'clock, I was giving a speech to a bunch of executives in Kuala Lumpur. And so I think education will change. And as we learn about these blended environments where sometimes the instructors are remote, sometimes some of the students are remote, sometimes it's, it's both. There are many, many ways that education will be allowed to touch and reach other people. Amazing. Let's use that as a um, transition to talk about your book. Uh, you're very enthusiastic and also very um, skilled teacher. I mean, you just basically broke down some very complex uh, ideas and concepts into, you know, this brain, which could only handle little bits at a time. So I appreciate you. I think that's an under uh, underestimated and maybe undervalued skill that a lot of uh, people like you have. Talk about this book, why you wrote it, who you wrote it for. So the book is called The Brains and Brawn Company, How Leading Organizations Blend the Best of Digital and Physical. And it came out of, you know, as I was bringing guests into several of my classes uh, at Stanford and as I was watching a lot of the startups in Silicon Valley, I was finding that companies that were winning really combined the best of digital and physical. And so one of the courses I teach is called the Industrialist Dilemma. And the idea behind the Industrialist Dilemma is we said, okay, tech companies are now going after traditional organizations and traditional industries like mobility and healthcare and financial services. And so the, the, you know, the new Silicon Valley people are just going to come in and completely take over. And we were wrong. Like, you know, what we found was like, you know, great retailers had figured out how to blend digital and physical and absorb and learn from the disruptors, but they held on to certain competencies that they were good at. And similarly, the disruptors who were really good also understood that they couldn't just stay behind a screen slinging code all day, that if they were going to be in these in these businesses, you couldn't just outsource manufacturing. You had to really understand things like supply chain and manufacturing. And so we, we came up with the the framework of the brains and brawn company and with the brains you know we, we looked at five different digital attributes that that you know kind of you know are ways that important attributes that companies need to have for winning so things like the left hemisphere which is using analytics the right hemisphere uh having creativity the amygdala empathy empathy for your employees for your customers we looked at the prefrontal cortex how do you deal with risk you know and finally we looked at the inner ear which is how you balance ownership and partnership 
And on the bronze side, on the physical side, we looked at like the spine. How well do you do logistics? Uh, we looked at muscles. You know, uh, you know, can you operate at scale on a global basis? We looked at hands. You know, how are you at making things? We looked at hand-eye coordination, uh, which really kind of gets you. How do you shape and drive your ecosystem? And then finally, stamina. Can you survive over time? And so we looked at a bunch of the companies where you know I'm really lucky, Brian. Like I'm not that interesting, but I happen to work here, so I'll get CEOs from all over the world who will come to my class and they'll share their learnings and they'll let us write about their company and study their company. And so in the book, we were able to share what we have able to see, been able to see at Stanford and put it in a way that hopefully people can relate to. And then they can look at their own companies. So you asked who I wrote it for. I wrote it not only for executives and senior, you know, senior level managers, but even junior managers to understand like, What's happening in the world and how can I look at my organization? And then the last chapter, I, we, we write it on an idea called systems leadership, which is a different class that I teach. Systems leadership, the idea is that leaders of tomorrow and over the next couple of decades, because everything is connected, they really need to see the entire system. They need to understand how things fit together. And so they need to understand like there's interactions between groups inside of a company, say manufacturing and marketing that impacts and sends ripples throughout the organization or your company interacts with its suppliers or its channels. And there's like a lot of data now that's flowing back and forth and systems leaders need to understand these types of interactions. And so we described some examples of great systems leaders that we studied and, and, and try to you know, point to them so that people could say, oh, I, I get that. Now I think I know some of the behaviors maybe that I need to model or maybe I need to change a little bit you know, what I was doing before uh, to, to take advantage of the new world order. Can I ask, what surprised you about, what surprised you in your research that you didn't expect? I guess... A few things. The first was from the from the incumbent side, the large organizations, the women and men who run those companies, like they get it. They they under they are not dinosaurs who are like gonna die. They they are throw down a they name. are on top of throw down a name so we have context. Who who are we talking about? All right. So okay, so for example, like Target, like Brian Cornell and the leadership target, they really do blend digital and physical well. Um I, I look at somebody like Craig Mini, our Home Depot. You know, they they do a great job. AB InBev takes risk really well. They're smart about how they do it. So the incumbents, I think, really do some great things. Uh, Charles Schwab, how they handle analytics. Um, they're thoughtful about using data and how they use data, and just as importantly, how they don't use data. Now, on the other side, what was surprising to me was the disruptors. Like, like there's a company called Desktop Metal, which does 3D manufacturing. They understand the physical world. They are not just, hi, we're going to have a new machine and throw it out there. They're very thoughtful about, like, where will the factory be placed? Like, you could put the factory at your customer, and the customer can actually make the parts they need there. Uh, 23andMe, which is a company, in fact, we were introduced through our CEO, through Ann Wojcicki, right? So if you look at what Ann's doing, Ann's really thought through not only how to get the data that we have for our DNA, but also how to partner with a company like GSK for drug development and manufacturing. So I think what surprised me was like the great leaders really understood the other side. And, and that was, I think, my big aha. I kind of expected people in Silicon Valley to have a digital-only mindset, and that wasn't true. The great leaders understood digital and physical. And similarly, in the incumbent organizations, you know, I used to work at GE. I was amazed at how well the leaders there, the women and men who run those companies, understand what needs to be done in order to execute well. Let me ask you two things that come to mind. Um, one is Amazon, and I, I see even in my local neighborhood, little Amazon grocery stores. Now, 
most people know that they acquired Whole Foods. That's different. You know, that was maybe they did that for key learning. Maybe that was a strategic acquisition. Uh, maybe it was a distribution play. But I also see dedicated Amazon grocery stores, uh, which may end up sort of being like a Walmart superstore at some point. Um, this is kind of what you're talking about, right? People who understand like Bezos. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. You know, we're, we're a physical species. Like the whole, like, this notion that everyone was going to work from home forever, wrong. Like we actually like being with people. And so, you know, the great companies understand like the stores aren't going to go away. Sometimes, by the way, you need something. So you want to go out and, and experience that. And so that's why you'll go to a store and go shopping. Clothes you might want to try on in the store. Sometimes you can have it sent to your house like Stitch Fix does. But sometimes you want to go out and have that experience. Similarly, if you need toothpaste, they may not be able to get it to you quickly. But if you can get it at your local store, you'll run down and, make, and go get it if you need to. So it, it's, I think the great companies understand that the world is and. And the last thing I'll say, especially with new brands, like a direct-to-consumer brand, those stores are also kind of the ability for experienced goods to put them out there to try them. Like if you want to buy a Casper mattress, right, you can go to a Casper store and try the mattress before you buy it. And, and they don't have to keep the... Yeah, that was going to be my, my next comment is it seems like Casper uh, is a great example and there's several others. We actually just did a great story with um, Matteo Franceschetti who uh, is the CEO and founder of Eight Sleep, a great brand, uh, technology mattress. But I was thinking of uh, cars, actually. So the way you buy a car is now disrupted. What is it? Is it called Canva? What is that online? You can... uh, uh, Carvana? Carvana? Sorry. Yeah, it's it's Carvana. Um, and even Tesla you know, has been doing this for a while where you can go into a mall and there's like a Tesla store. It's so weird. Cars parked in there and then you can place your order and order your car, I guess. Um, so what is the, what's the takeaway lesson then for companies that are not Carvana and not Casper and not Amazon? You know, the, the guys and gals who maybe are just in development, what, what's the lesson? Well, I think you want to, you want to figure out why do people go to the store? Do they need, for example, to take it away right away? So, so Tesla has the advantage that they're selling direct and they can cut out the channel, right? And, and you know, the notion of a dealer uh, network, right? The notion of a, the way franchisees work for the large automotive companies was that's what gave the automotive manufacturers the ability to kind of get reach. But now with digitization, like you don't need to do that. And so you don't have to buy the big real estate. You don't have to buy car lots. You don't, you don't have to do those things. And so for certain types of products, actually you can deliver it in a particular way that's more effective, more, more effective for the customer and more effective from a cost basis. Um, there are certain products you will want to take away a lot, you know, and, and so like you, you will want to have a store for them. So is your store a showroom and then you deliver it directly to somebody's house or to their business? Or is it a place that you're going because you're, you need to do something in the store itself? Yeah, just something that came to mind as you were talking. I guess I put my finger on why I like the Carvanas and I like the Tesla shop. It's because the experience as it exists today is terrible. I, I yeah. don't want to go buy a car at a car dealership because it's horrendous. Yeah. And so maybe yeah. that's the opportunities. Maybe that's the white spaces you know, or that's the place to start is, is your current experience horrendous? <laughs> and if so, maybe you yeah. can take that yeah. off offline. That's an opportunity. You know, it's funny. I end up buying a lot of my toiletries from Amazon. 
Um, because half the time I would go to CVS, they wouldn't have the dental floss that I wanted, or they wouldn't have my brand of deodorant. So I'll go into Amazon and buy six at a time. Like I'm going to, that, that's a kind of a repeat purchase. I don't mind buying six and it's not that huge of a dollar commitment to buy, you know, three things of deodorant or six tubes of toothpaste, but I'm going to get what I want. It's delivered to the house. That's way better than my having to drive to the store and then they don't have it in the stock. Right. And so, yeah. Uh, the other thing that comes to mind and uh, f forgive me for just sort of riffing off of your good brain. Um, but I also think that maybe, you know, in, in places or industries where there's already established trust and knowledge, you know, we all know what a car is. We basically know how it works, even if it's highly technical or luxury, you know, it's an automobile, right? So it's got four wheels generally, you know, an ignition, either it's electric EV or it's gas. There's not a lot of convincing we need to do that, you know, so maybe that's another opportunity to look for is like, you can sort of ride off the goodwill and sunk costs of all these other giants incumbents that they've built the foundation for you to sort of slide right in there and take advantage of the consumer trust that's already in place. Exactly. Economists would say, is something an experience good or is it not an experience good? And an experience good is you want to see it, touch it and feel it before you buy it. And a great example of that is the Nest thermostat. When Tony Fidel and the team at Nest, they didn't cut out the channel. So what they did was they actually did deals with Home Depot and Lowe's to make sure that when you walked into the store, there was a beautiful end cap display so that you could touch the dial and feel how well it was designed. And then when you went to buy it, they realized that the enemy was the contractor who installed the thermostat. That was the real problem. And so the, what they were able to do is they, when you go to buy it, the, the retailer would hand you, here are the five authorized contractors in your area who could install this properly for you to make sure it got connected correctly to the internet. And so I think that was kind of the one of the key things that, 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 that Tony and the team figured out, that cutting out the channel is not always the answer. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank, thank you for working that out with me and putting it into legitimate... Uh... <sighs> Legitimate terms. I appreciate that. You know, my, my mind just it was legitimate the way you described it, Brian. It was totally legitimate the way you I'm, I'm just building on what you said. I'm fascinated with the book. Um, give us maybe some final words here as we as we round third base coming home. Um, maybe some of your personal advice, you know, from the va vantage point of this hindsight, you know, you've done these case studies. They sound like very sophisticated case studies uh, and deeply researched and vetted. So kind of give us give us the advice. Um, and again, we're, we're talking to majority of people that are, are watching are probably 30 something mid career go getter men and women who, you know, um, are really trying to, to, you know, f f find these tr the secret sauce, right? What's the key to success. All right. So a few key points. The first, and we've talked about a few of them. The first I'm going to say winning companies going forward are going to blend digital and physical. And so the, the thing I would ask, you know, potential readers to think about is, is your company blending digital and physical or is it only doing one or the other? Um, the second thing is incumbents are not doomed and disruptors are not ordained. Like this is like the games are in times of volatility, 
you know, games can be won and we're headed into times of disruption and times of volatility. And it's not just like the new young kids are going to get it right and the old people are going to die. Some of the old dinosaurs will die and some of the old dinosaurs will get stronger. Some of the disruptors will come in uh, and, and succeed and, and, and some will fail. Uh, the last thing I would say is that really, as leaders, we need to change how we manage and how we lead on things. You know, when I talk about systems leadership, it's in infinitely more important to be able to see intersections, you know, how to manage operationally excellence, but also know how to manage innovation and how to have what we call a product manager's mindset. Do you understand customers? Do you understand engineering? Do you understand how the sales force works? Um, the importance of communication and managing context in a world where there's so much information. You know, Alvin Toffler coined the phrase information overload in Future Shock in 1970. That's accelerating. And leaders need to be really good at managing context. Uh, Jeff Immelt, my old boss at GE and my co colleague at Stanford, says that truth equals facts plus context. So I think those are kind of the key three messages of blending of digital and physical, incumbents are not doomed and disruptors are not ordained, and great leaders going forward will be systems leaders. Uh, and kind of like anybody can do this. It's a choice. It's a choice that people make to, to, to act and behave and learn and get in front of what's coming. Uh, there's nothing that stops individuals and companies from being great. I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, <laughs> chopping it up, reminiscing about the good old days and all that. <laughs> You know, tracking my roots, where I came from and where I'm going. But like I say, man, always said it. It's not about the destination. It's all about the journey. Ain't nothing changed but the weather. The dangling carrot and hang from the rear view. Uh -huh. Your dreams in the past ain't nowhere near you. Backseat drivers got nothing but two cents. Shotgun riders too biased, they all liars. I should get an A for effort, I'm too tired. But I'm never giving up, that's why I'm kind of in my...